Right, I want to spend this final session speaking a few words about a man called Raymond Lull. If you've seen my photograph board, you'll realize there's no photograph there of Raymond Lull. That's because he was born before a man called Henry Fox Talbot, who were one of the pioneers of, of photography. So we really don't know what the man looks like, but you can just imagine what he looks like by the time I've finished. Most folk have never heard of Raymond Lull. And uh, when several folks said to me, outside of this convention, what are you going to speak on? And I told them they hadn't heard of Edinburgh 1910 either. Uh, they'd heard of Christmas Evans, but Raymond Lull, I mean, who on earth is he? Well, he was a 13th century believer. And believe me, at one level, I've fallen in love with him in terms of all that he stood for and, and all that he did in his life. I say to myself, why has nobody ever told me about Raymond Lull? To put it in a sentence, he was probably the first man from the Western world, really, to reach out to Muslims without a sword in his hand, but with the love of Christ in his heart. And uh, one of the reasons why we perhaps feel slightly uncomfortable with him is because he was a Catholic. Could you imagine me giving this paper at the Banner of Truth conference? I don't think so. And we go, oh no, what on earth is happening? After seven years, I can see that we're slowly moving away from our roots. But wait a minute. John Wycliffe was a Catholic, so was William Tyndale, so was Jan Hus, and so was Martin Luther. And, and, and these people were converted in the Catholic Church and didn't know what to do. In the end, we know that Martin Luther got out. He was like a bull in a china shop. And uh, should I say this? I often kind of equate Boris Johnson with, with Martin Luther. Uh, this kind of, this, I couldn't care what people say, I'm just going to do it. And, and in the end, Luther broke out of the Catholic Church. But not everyone was like Luther, and they were stuck. And by the way, there was no FIC handbook to find the local evangelical church to go along to. So what happens when God does something powerful in your life? You're in the Catholic Church, what do you do? And that's the situation that uh, Raymond Lull found himself in. I want to suggest he was neither a Catholic nor a Protestant, he was a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to remind ourselves that Catholicism and Protestantism are both man-made movements. They're both man-made movements. In fact, my understanding is that just about every church, to my knowledge, on the face of the earth has been started by some human being for some reason or other. There's an interesting series, if you want to look for a series to sort of do and work on, Take hold of all the personal pronouns used by the Lord Jesus. This is, he didn't use many, he said, this is my body. And he said, I will build my church. And it is so easy, is it not, to be involved in building our own institutions and our own churches. But really, we're not called to do that. We're here to facilitate his church. And by the way, he's the head of the church. I mean, and again, we have man-made systems where people are the head of the church. I kind of gasp, thinking, what book are they reading? There's only one head of the church. And it's neither the queen, nor the pope, nor the archbishop, or the prime minister. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the church of which I'm a member. And he's the head of the church. And by the way, he said, I will build my church. You won't build it. I will build my church. I will work through you. And, and it will never, ever collapse. So isn't it great to be part of an organization that's getting bigger and better? And it's a great opening gambit, isn't it, for evangelism. What do you do? I work for the longest-running business in the history of the world. 
what's that? Is it Google? No. What is it? It's the church. Oh, but it's true. And the church will never disappear. And as I said in the answers and questions sessions, you're either part of the church militant or the church triumphant. And how interesting the church down here is a church militant, which means you almost have to be fighting all the time. We constantly find our backs against the wall, but one day we shall find ourselves in the church triumphant. This man had a rather dramatic conversion, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. And, and after his conversion, where the love of Christ just flooded into his heart, he then had this intense desire to share that love primarily with Muslims. Why? Because he was Spanish. Uh, he came from Mallorca. And uh, he had a real desire. But the trouble is, the church in his day had a real desire to reach out to Muslims with a sword in their hand to take their heads off their shoulders. Called Crusades. I can never work out which clown it was who invented the expression, let's have a gospel crusade. <laughs> and uh, I was once talking to a pastor who said we, have, we had a church once in, in a Jewish community in this country. And, and he said we were advertising all outside the church, gospel crusade. He said, and then I realized why we really didn't make much of an impact during the crusade. Because people have all these kind of connotations, even to a Muslim. If you've ever really got involved in some serious discussion with a Muslim, they will throw the Crusades in our face and say the Crusades killed thousands of our people and also it killed thousands of Jews. And he read the Bible and said, this is not the Jesus who saved me. And so suddenly he found himself out of step with the church. What do I do? Well, it's quite interesting. The Roman Catholic Church never really knew and still doesn't really know what to do with a man called Raymond Lowe. I have to admit, the vessel from which he was fishing was corrupt. It was rotten. And you know, when you hang around rotten things, after a while that whiff gets into you. And uh, I've come to realize that there's no perfect church. And I couldn't care how clean and orthodox you think your organization is. You know, after a while things are not what they really should be and things start to deteriorate. I have to say, yes, I believe the Roman Catholic Church that he was fishing from was totally corrupt. And some of that kind of corruption got onto him. But you know something? We'll deal with this towards the end. If all of us had to stand here for one hour and speak about what we believe, it would be surprising some of the rubbish that would come out. Thinking, you really believe that? Tell me, where does that come from in Scripture? I'm not justifying heresy. And I'm not saying, well, you know, to be honest, let's forget Edinburgh 1910. They were okay. No, it's important that we keep ourselves clean. But I just want you to be aware of that in case you say to me, hang on a minute, all that you've said has been nullified because of a couple of things I'm going to speak about. Have you heard of Roger Bacon? He was born 15 years before Raymond Lull. Genghis Khan. I had a man in my church who came from that part of the world. I used to call him Genghis. He said, Pastor, it's Genghis, not Genghis. Okay. So from now on, I just stuck a bit. Okay, Mr. Khan. Uh, <laughs> He was born in 1227, and uh, he, he died seven years before uh, Raymond Lowe was born. Oxford University was founded 14 years after he was born. And Dante, he was born 30 years after Raymond Lowe was born. So you kind of get him in this, this era, born in 1235. The church at that time can be described by three main things. Number one, it was riddled with, with heresy, absolute nonsense. That was the kind of church of the day in which he was brought up in. The priesthood was riddled with simony. That means that you, you paid to get a position. So if you fancied being a bishop, 
or even, even higher up in the church, money opened doors for you. And, uh, and thirdly, it was riddled with immorality. Uh, we know that celibacy was part of the order of the day, but most priests either had a mistress or were regular visitors to brothels. And again, this was a shock to a man who hadn't been brought up in the church to get converted, start mingling with priests going, well, I lived in this world before I got converted. So, so what is this? It really challenged him to the core of his being. He was born in 1235 in Parma on the island of Mallorca. And he was born into a very distinguished Catalonian family. And at that time, half of Spain was ruled over by the Muslims, by the Moors. And there was this battle between the Spanish, the, the native Spaniards, and also the incoming Muslims, as it were. There was constant conflict. His father was involved in fighting for the king, in pushing back the Muslims out of Mallorca. And uh, when they got rid of them, the king was so delighted with what Raymond Lil's father had done, he, he allowed him and his brother to buy large portions of the place and actually gave him a massive villa to say, thank you for the part you've played in ridding us of the Muslims. And that's where he was born, Raymondo, or Raymond Lil. When your father starts mixing with royalty and is high up in the military, you can expect decent education. He had a very, very good education. And at the age of 14, he was brought into the royal court. It was recognized this man has gray cells between his ears. And the monarch wanted him to be a kind of tutor to his two younger sons, even though he was only 14. And so, as a young boy, he was rubbing shoulders with the future king of Spain. But you know that those kind of opportunities give many, many temptations. You're living in the royal court. You're mixing with with people who came to see the king on a regular basis. He, as a, as a late teenager, was given the job of looking after all the whining and dining and the banqueting. I mean, I, I know 19-year-olds I wouldn't even trust, okay, with a bit of lipstick, male or female these days. But, but even, he, was, he was trusted with, with running kind of all the banqueting for the king and the courts. He admitted... I lived a life of wine and women and song because that's what that world opened up to me. He was married. He got married quite young, but he never let his marriage get in his way. I remember uh, reading a gentleman who was traveling through uh, Central Asia, and he said, one night I I slept on a bench uh, in in a railway station in the middle of nowhere, but there was another man there. And he said, I was a little bit nervous of this man. I said to him, are you married? And the man said, no, I'm not, but my wife is. It's a very clever answer. There are many people who are married, well, their wife is, but they're not, because they live that kind of lifestyle. And uh, that's the kind of lifestyle that he lived. And he admitted, he said, there was darkness all around me when I look back, but the greatest darkness was in me. And again, this is... This is kind of bread and butter to us in the 21st century. But to a man living in the 13th century, this is radical stuff to say there's darkness in me and there's darkness all around me. Listen to him writing in one of his books. And by the way, he wrote 300 books throughout his life. He said, I see, O Lord, that trees bring forth every, bring every year flowers and fruit, each after their kind, whence mankind derived pleasure and profit. But thus, it was not with me sinful man that I was. 
For 30 years I brought no fruit into the world. I cumbered the ground, nay, was noxious and hurtful to my friends and neighbors. Therefore, since a mere tree, which has neither intellect nor reason, is more profitable than I have been, I am exceedingly ashamed and count myself worthy of great blame. If you want it in a sentence, he was a waster. And he was a sinful waster. He started to write poetry. And uh, as well as writing poetry, he could play the sitem. So he was musical. So you can see this very gifted young man. And, and, and he's probably one of Catalonia's most famous poets, even today. But poetry comes out of the heart. I don't know if you've ever read the, the poetry of, of Byron. It's kind of most interesting stuff. Very autobiographical. There's, there's one verse that, that, that Byron wrote where he said, I have, I have drunk more than any man on the face of the earth. And I have drunk deeper than any man, but I come up more thirsty than any man I've ever met. Meaning it doesn't satisfy. And that's exactly what this man began to say. He said in his poetry, there's something missing in my life. And then what happened? He came to faith in Christ. How does God save a man in the Roman Catholic Church? How does he save him? And... Uh, it's quite a mind-blowing question, isn't it, really? Well, these days, well, you can go on YouTube, you can download something, you can pick up a tract, you can hear evangelists, you can slip into a church. What do you do when the church is corrupt and there's so much darkness all around? How does God save a man? Well, I don't know how you feel about this, but he had a vision. And he said, Jesus Christ broke into my life and revealed himself to me and said, Raymond, I died for you. Get rid of this immorality and come to me, the light of the world. Now you say, well, wait a minute, I'm not too sure about visions and dreams. Listen, Roman Catholicism in those days was riddled with Mariolatry, angel worship, the elevation of saints. He never touched on any of that. And furthermore, what about the Apostle Paul? When he stood before Agrippa, he said to Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. What happened to Paul on the Damascus Road? And by the way, even Martin Luther, brute though he was at times, on a couple of occasions in his life, he said, God broke into my life supernaturally and I saw him in a vision. I have met people in my life, not too many, who have told me that Jesus Christ has literally broken into their life. And it's very difficult to argue against them to say, I think you had too much cheese or... You know, are you sure you weren't watching Joel Austin or one of these kind of characters? Uh, the, the man who led my brother, who is still a Christian, still walking with the Lord a few years older than me, he, he quite clearly, he said, he, he came to our family and he explained that while he was in his bedroom, Jesus Christ came in, confronted him with his sin, and he said, I dropped on my knees and had no option but to yield to his grace. And... and the grace in his life was so powerful that it actually led my brother to the Lord. Who can ever forget hearing Fred Lemon? Now, many of you say, who on earth was Fred Lemon? He was a grocer down in, in Southampton. But again, I heard him in Cardiff say that when he was in prison for GBH, praying that the man who he'd assaulted wouldn't die, because if he died, he'd be hanged. He said, as I was in the cell, Jesus Christ came into my cell that night and confronted me. 
And uh, now I have never had those kind of experiences. A friend of mine, a Pentecostal pastor who's now retired, he said he once read a book in college entitled Fast 40 Days and See Visions. He said, I fast one day and see burgers. (laughs) And furthermore, do we not hear a lot these days of people in the Islamic world who have a divine dream and vision? I have baptized one converted Muslim who came to fight in Christ through Jesus Christ stepping into his bedroom. It's not every day. But when it happens, we thank God for it. So if it can happen in the 21st century, if it can happen to Martin Luther, why can't it happen to Raymond Lowe? And the proof is this, not the vision, but what does the vision produce? And what that vision produced in this man's life is absolutely outstanding. But it even gets more bizarre. When did Jesus appear to him? Well, being a bit of a Jack the Lad, and he... He liked women. Uh, We talk about eye candy. He wouldn't say that. But uh, a good-looking woman he always liked. And a new woman came across his horizon. How how do I kind of chat her up? I write her a love song. And then say to her, it's really nice to meet you. Do you know something? I saw you a few weeks ago and thought of you. You've been on my mind and I've written a poem about you. What a great chat-up line. (laughs) Nobody ever told me that when I was a teenager. But uh, anyway, but because he was a total sinner, it was a slightly erotic kind of risky poem. So he said he was sat on his bed playing on his sitter trying to compose this sort of risky poem to this woman when suddenly the Lord appeared and said, you immoral man, stop it. He said, I I couldn't do any more and I stopped and he said, for eight days, I, I couldn't do anything until, until this impression faded. And he said, eight days later, I picked it up again because this woman was burning in my life. I wanted to make contact with her. And as I tried to compose again, he came again. He said, I had no option but to put everything down and to lie on my bed and to repent of my sinfulness and say, Lord Jesus, I am sorry for what I'm doing. He said, there and then the light of Jesus Christ came into my life and I was made a new person. We would say he was born again. Thank God. Not long after having been cleansed on the inside and God doing a great work in his life, suddenly it's as if God birthed in his heart a desire to reach Muslims. And is that not true of us really? It's as if Suddenly when we got converted and and the Spirit of God seems to be very strong in our lives, even as young Christians, as if God births things in us in those early days that may take a few years to come to fruit, but they're there in those early days. So you find people who've just been converted, they want to win the world for Jesus. We go, hang on a minute, just to slow down a bit, but I can see you've got a heart for evangelism. So let's kind of work along that. He had this real desire to reach Muslims, but the trouble is they spoke Arabic slight problem how on earth do you reach Muslims when you don't speak Arabic we'll come to that in a moment he was so enthused about what God had done in his life he he decided to do three things number one sell all his property and when your father is pretty wealthy in Catalonia and you've inherited quite a bit of his wealth that's a lot of stuff to get rid of 
Secondly, to give the money that you have to the poor. And then we'll come to this as well. He had a wife and children to use a little bit of that money to look after them for the rest of their lives. And then he took a vow. Lord, I'm going to follow you. Francis of Assisi had died just 40 years prior to this. If I could just press the pause button. I'm only speaking personally here and I'm I'm answerable for all these opinions that are being expressed here. I have mega problems with Francis of Assisi. I really don't think he understood the gospel at all. If you really read into the life of Francis of Assisi, it's almost kind of salvation by works. You know, walking to heaven with peas in your shoes. Like the more uncomfortable it is, then, you know, God will look on that as a real act of sacrifice. It's, it's kind of, I feel very uncomfortable with the kind of Christianity that these kind of people were, were banding around. But that was the world in, in which sort of Raymond Lull lived. Okay, remove the, per, the, the pause button. So suddenly he finds himself in a very difficult situation that he wants to serve the Lord. He's in a church where you can only really serve the Lord, technically speaking, if you are single, if you are a celibate priest. But he's got a wife, he's got children in tow. What do I do? Get rid of her? Get rid of that? I can't do that. That's not what the Lord would have me do. He kind of was struggling. You can see what this man was going through. In the end, he, he decided to dress as a monk. And I've never felt that urge at all. Uh, so he began to walk around in the garb of a mendicant. And you can imagine, what on earth has happened to Raimundo? You can imagine, just as we would banter and crack jokes about people sort of living down the road from us, you can imagine, he was a laughing stock of it. What is this idiot doing? Look at him, dressing like a monk. But he's not a monk. He was neither a Franciscan nor a Dominican. What he was, he was a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you need to understand this. In those days, Christianity was sacramental in terms of you were part of the big sacrament of the church and and that salvation was part of being in the church and participating in the sacraments. So as long as you went, you're okay. That's why the priests could behave as they did, because they were part of the sacramental community and taking the sacraments. Just like in the Amish community, salvation is belonging to the community. And if you're not part of the community, you are shunned. So there's no real personal salvation among the Amish people. And I'm sure you've read biographies of, of Amish people who have got converted and then have this kind of, oh dear me, I don't want to be part of this community, but if I leave the community, they'll shun me. and They'll say, you're not part of us, you're not a Christian. When really, they've never been more Christian than when they've been shunned. And that's the dilemma he was in, you see. And, and suddenly, here's a man in the Catholic Church who discovers that Christianity is not, is not ceremonial, And it's not communal, it's personal. He has a personal walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Islam was incredibly aggressive in those days. And in his writings, he tells us, for every one person who became a Christian, ten became Muslims. So who is going to tell these people about Jesus? I don't know if you've ever read Dante's Inferno. There's that great quotation, isn't it? A classic is a book that everyone quotes, but nobody reads. Yeah. Who's ever read Dante's Inferno? I think ten of those sell it. But uh, if you've ever read it, you'll know that Dante puts Mohammed in the lowest hell. 
uh, these days there'd be a fatwa against him for that kind of writing along with sort of satanic verses. He read the Bible and he realized that Jesus said, go and love them, not kill them. But what do you do when you're part of a church who says, the only good Muslim is a dead Muslim? Let's kill them. Remember, remember Tank Man in 1989 on the 5th of June when that solitary character stood in front of the whole of the Chinese army and stopped it. I often wonder what happened to Tank Man. I kind of look at Raymond Lull as, as God's Tank Man in the Roman Catholic Church in the 13th century saying, put your sword away. And by the way, how interesting, isn't it? I don't want to start preaching here because uh, we've had a an excellent exposition of God's word this morning, so you've had enough of that. But notice, when Peter pulled out his sword, and by the way, what is a man doing taking a sword to a prayer meeting? <laughs> Have you been to prayer meetings with swords? When Peter took a sword to a prayer meeting, a man lost his hearing. And when Christians start swinging a sword around, non-Christians cannot hear what we're saying. And Jesus said, put it away, put it away. And here's this tank man in the 13th century saying to the church, put your swords away. Let's love these people into the kingdom of God. But sadly, it fell on deaf ears. Right, so how do I reach them? I learn Arabic. Right, where do I start? Who wants to come and teach me Arabic? Would you? No way. The only way he could find anyone where he lived to teach him Arabic, was to employ a slave, a Muslim slave. And for nine years, a Muslim slave lived with this man and taught him Arabic. Nine years. It ended badly. This Muslim hated the Christianity he stood for. But, you know, board, lodging, money, well cared for. One day, this Muslim, so frustrated with this man's belief in Jesus Christ, he went to Raymond Lull and blasphemed in his face about Jesus Christ. Raymond Lull, being an unsanctified man like all of us here, was quite shocked at the blasphemy and slapped him across the face and said, don't you dare take that man's name in vain in my presence. He's my saviour. He was livid, but couldn't do anything about it. He waited his moment. When the time was right, when he thought the house was empty, he pulled out a knife and went to murder him. He did severely attack him, and it's only because he shouted out and screamed that somebody ran in and rescued Raymond Lull being murdered by his, his slave of nine years. The slave ran off. He knew he would be tried and sentenced to death for attempted murder. So he hanged himself. And suddenly, Raymond Lull is kind of faced with this situation. Okay, he blasphemed. I shouldn't have slapped him. But then he shouldn't have stabbed me. But there's not no reason for him to go and hang himself. And I don't know how you would cope with that. Talk about stress and so on. Terrible, terrible stuff. At the age of 41, having learned Arabic, he then started to, uh, to write books about Islam having read all their scholars. And this is the great thing. He said, it's no use going down to the grassroots. Let's go right to the top. Let's cut the poison off at the top. 
So he read all the leading Islamic scholars of the 13th century. Because he could understand Arabic and could speak it and could write it, you can imagine these Muslim scholars, when they did meet him, were stunned that here's a man who knows their theology as good as he knows it. Fascinating. His aim, basically, was to undermine their influence. He believed God gave him a threefold strategy. Number one, Raymond, undermine the source of the stream to get it right at the top. Number two, go around establishing missionary colleges to train evangelists to win Muslims for Jesus. And number three, go yourself. Okay. Now, when you think about it, it's pretty radical for a man in the 13th century training evangelists to go to Muslims. Have you heard of that before? What about my wife, Lloyd? What about my boys? He didn't want just to be an academic. He, uh, he wanted the church to take this on board and for it to be a church effort. But the church wasn't interested. And after banging his head against a wall so many times, in the end, he started his own college with 13 monks. And again, have you ever heard of those 13 monks? It's surprising, isn't it? We, we know the Luthers and the Calvins and the Spurgeons and, and the Amy Carmichaels. What about these 13 monks in the 13th century who said, I want to live my life telling Muslims about Jesus, showing the love of Christ, of whom the world is not worthy? He told them. He then said, look, I've, I've got to go and deal with authorities, really, because otherwise I'm going to get into deep trouble. So he went to see the Pope. If in doubt, see the Pope. So he traveled all the way to Rome to see the Pope, who was called Honorius IV. I don't know who gave these characters these titles. But anyway, he went to see him, but the thing is, the Pope died before he got there. The Pope probably knew he was coming, saying, get me out of this fix. So the Pope died. So when he eventually arrived in Rome, the throne was empty, but all his advisors was there, were there. So Raymond Lowe said to these advisors, I came to see the Pope, but obviously he's not here. Uh, this is my plan. I want to reach Muslims for Jesus. They said, we're not interested. Go home. You're not, inter not interested. Just go home. He didn't go home. He waited until they appointed a Pope. Pope Nicholas IV. That's a bit better. So one of the first things that Pope Nicholas IV did was have to see Raymond Lull. Welcome to your post. I'm Raymond Lull. I want to reach Muslims for Jesus. I too want to reach Muslims, said the Pope. When's the next crusade? No! So he realized that there was no go there. As he came away from Rome and did some more traveling around, he bumped into a man called Arnold de Villeneuve, a monk. They got chatting. The monk said to him, Raymond, I have discovered through reading the scriptures three things. Number one, the church is corrupt. They have spoiled the scriptures. It's not what I read in the scriptures. Number two, I've discovered the mass is blasphemy. And number three, I've discovered that the Pope and the hierarchy is a man-made institution. And I want to argue 300 years before the Protestant Reformation 
there were people like Raymond Lowe and Arnold de Villeneuve who understood justification by faith and were passionate about it. They became bosom friends. The Pope died. It was always dangerous being a Pope. Uh, the turnover was faster than some city or United managerships in the Premiership, really, just coming and going and coming and going. The Pope died. Another Pope came to the throne. And so he thought, right, I'll go and see him. So he, he went to see the Pope. He'd been on the throne six years, on six months, but another man thought he had the right to be on the Pope's throne rather than him. So Boniface, goodness knows where that came from, Boniface VIII got rid of the Pope and put him in prison and he died. And so Raymond Lill said to this new Pope, I want to reach Muslims for Jesus. I want the backing of the church. He said, we're not interested. Raymond Lill said all he was interested in was furthering his own career. Isn't it frightening? You know, I... I mean, I laugh at this and you laugh at it. But the trouble is, I don't count this as the church at all. And really, a lot of church history has got nothing to do with the church. The real church is the church, generally speaking, you don't read about. Those 13 monks. Not people in positions of authority and power. And it's like when you pick up the newspaper today, you read all this stuff sometimes about the church in the paper. Yeah, that is the institution, but the real church will never get into the paper. The real people of God. Having banged his head against the wall and having a whacking headache, at 56, he said, well, the only thing I can do is, is go myself. So at 56, he, he wanted to go out to either Tunis, Algeria, on that North African coast. And uh, it was in the grip of Islam. So he, he got a couple of friends to help him board ship. And I love the honesty of the situation. Everything's on board. He knows he's walking into the lion's den, as the boat is about to pull out of port, he gets cold feet. He says, quick, get all the stuff off. All the stuff off. I really don't want to be a martyr. It's too soon. And then as soon as the boat sailed away, he felt a real failure for Christ. Remember Thomas Bilney? That's exactly what happened to Bilney. You know, I, I've really let the Lord down by going along with that which I denied, and now I feel a traitor. Lord, give me one more chance to die for you. Interesting kind of theology. So, there he is, led by the side of the port with his friends. His enemies had a great time, you coward. Mocked him. When the next boat was coming, he said, get me on that boat whether I'm sick or ill. Get me on that boat. So they put him on a boat. And halfway across to Africa, he recovered from his, his kind of wobble. And he arrived in Africa on his own, to take on Islam. He went straight to the city where he landed. He asked to see the leading imam, introduced himself in perfect Arabic, and said, I would like to challenge you to a public debate between the value of Christianity and Islam. He said, if you can convince me that Islam is better than Christianity, I will publicly renounce my faith and become a Muslim. Wonderful. So a big debate was called. You can imagine people came in their hundreds to listen to this debate. Everyone was stunned that this man from Europe was speaking perfect Arabic. Where's he got this from? He said to the Muslim scholars, you speak first and then I'll speak second. 
So they put forward their case for, for Islam. And then he stood up. He said, friends, I have read your book. And I have studied your God. Show me in your book where Allah is a God of love. I have come to conclude, he said, that Allah is a God of hate. And that Allah hates people. And he hates sinners. And you have no guarantee in your life that if you die, he will accept you. Prove it to me. Furthermore, he said, as I've looked at all the attributes of Allah, and he listed them, they all contradict one another. So obviously your God is very confused. And you are very confused about the Trinity. Let me explain to you. Imagine this in Arabic. Let me explain to you the Trinity. Some of us can't explain it in English. He explains the Trinity to them. And then he says, do you know something? My God is a God of grace and a God of love. So much so, he gave his only begotten son to die for our sins and to rise again from the dead. And do you know something? I have met that man for he's turned my life upside down for I was an immoral person until I met Jesus Christ. It's almost like Acts 17. Some listened and believed. Some doubted. Some said, kill the swine. Kill him. Who does he think he is? So he was buying in prison, and people were baying for his execution. Thankfully, there was one man there, a very powerful imam, said, no, no, if we kill him, he's won. Send him back to Europe. So they brought him out and said, we've been deeply offended by what you've said. Go back to Europe. If we ever see you in this country again, we will publicly stone you. So he was put on a boat to go back to... Uh, to Spain. Thankful the boat was sailing at night. Before it set sail, he pulled off all his belongings and scurried like a wharf rat to the home of one of the new believers and he hid there for months. And those who believed came nightly as he opened the word of God to them and discipled them in the things of God. This was getting so big and out of hand, he realized if this goes on any longer, I'm going to be stoned. And so he slipped out and, and he went over to Naples. And, uh, and there he, he worked from Naples, reaching out to Muslims, trying to encourage people and things of that nature. While he was in Naples, he also went on to Cyprus. He then went to work in Armenia for a year, just looking out Muslims and telling them about the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, he not only had a love for Muslims, but also a love for Jews. We know that uh, in 1253, France expelled Jews. And our own country, 1290, got rid of the Jews. You're not welcome here. He said, but these people have told me about the Lord Jesus. And, and the Lord Jesus is Jewish. How can I be cruel to Jews? So he was not only reaching out to Muslims, he was also reaching out to Jews. Oh, by the way, when he arrived back he heard there was a new pope down in Avignon. <laughs> so he went all the way down to Avignon and said, Hello, it's me, I'm Raymond Lull. I work among Muslims. Are you interested in Muslim evangelism? Again, the pope said, not interested. This is the fourth time he's knocked on the door of the church saying, I need help. And every time the door was, was closed in his face. He said, if this is the case, I'll go back to Africa. 
So he got back on the boat and went, thankfully, to a different place in Africa, knowing that he wasn't walking straight into death. But again, he did the same thing. He went to the leading imam and said, I would like, I'd like a public debate about the Lord Jesus Christ and about Muhammad. You speak first, you tell me all you can about Muhammad, and then I'll tell you all I can about the Lord Jesus Christ. So he stood up. He told them that Jesus is the only way to God and that uh, Jesus is far better than uh, the Muhammad. Well, you can't imagine that went down like a pork chop in Mecca. His, his method of evangelism was very interesting. I'm not all that sure you would say he was very wise. He said, I want to speak on the Ten Commandments. He said, these are the Ten Commandments. You know them because you are good Muslims. He said, now, I want to look at Muhammad in the Quran to see if he keeps the Ten Commandments. <laughs> he went through all ten and said, you know, he's broken every one of them. Now let's bring out Jesus Christ. He went through them all. He said he's kept every one. Could you please tell me how your Muhammad is greater than Jesus when my Jesus has kept God's law but your Muhammad has broken every one of them? In those days they had what were called seven cardinal sins. You know the seven cardinal sins? Uh, the church loves to talk about the seven cardinal sins. So he said, well, in, in, in my tradition, we talk about the seven cardinal sins. And so he went through the seven cardinal sins and said, look, Jesus has never done any of these, but your, your Muhammad has done every one of them, if he did. He was banged in prison for 18 months. Again, people wanted to execute him. And during those 18 months, they tried to wear him down. We will set you free. We will give you riches. We will give you women. We will give you whatever you want but just deny the name of Jesus. He said, I would rather die. Do you know something? When a man is not afraid of death, you can't touch him. Remember hearing Joseph Ton say that. Very moving. When they said to him, we are going to execute you. And he said, if you execute me, you do me a favor. You put me into the presence of my Savior. And furthermore, you splatter all my cassettes in those days. Remember those things called cassettes? He said, you splatter all my cassettes with blood. And folk will say, why is this cassette covered in blood? Because this man believed what he was preaching. He said, they set him free. When a person is not afraid of death, they are untouchable. So he said, you can kill me if you want. I'm not afraid of death. So amazingly, after 18 months, they just got rid of him and said, go. But if you come back, we will stone you. Sometimes when things get tough, I say to my wife, Jane, we have not yet suffered unto blood. We have not yet suffered unto blood. This man is remarkable. I keep saying to myself, why has no one told me about him? He's inspiring me. He wasn't just a missionary, by the way. He was a theologian. He was a poet. He was a philosopher. He was a novelist. He was a logician. He wrote books about just about everything. 300. How about this for one book? The squaring and the triangulation of the circle. <laughs> he wrote seven volumes on medicine, a book on navigation. He wrote a book on the compass. And uh, he wrote 63 theological books. But he never wrote a book on the saints. 
He wrote on all these different things, but when it came to theology primarily, it was about Jesus he spoke, not about typical Catholic things. As you know, uh, there are the Muslim rosary. You know, you go around, you probably got one if you reformed, Calvin, Luther, Melanchthon, you know. There's also an Arminian one too as well. <laughs> yeah, well, you know the Muslim rosary, the hundred names of God. Well, he wrote a book called The Hundred Names of Jesus to try and get it out to Muslims to say, I want you to know about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not just writing fantasy. I'm actually writing truth. These are things that I live by. I like the title of one of his books, The Greatness and the Littleness of Man. For a number of years, I used to sit under Vernon Hine as a student, and, and I always loved this little illustration. He, he was an interesting preacher, was Vernon Hine. And, and there I was as a kind of man in my early 20s, and some Sundays he would say, we worship a big God. And then there's little me. And little me can't even remember what I was worrying about 12 months ago. So why am I worried today? I forgot that. Big God. Little me. Very powerful, isn't it? We are so little. And we worry about so many things. So here's this big man, but a little man. He's writing in Latin. He's writing in Arabic. He's writing in Catalonian. Wow. How does he fit all this into his life? In those days, it was believed that Truth could be found in five ways. The Roman Catholic Church said you could find truth in five ways. Observation, reading, listening, conversation, and meditation. He said there's a sixth way, suffering. I would say there's a seventh way, revelation. Even though he'd experienced close shares with death on two occasions and been banging his head against the wall with the Catholic Church for years. At the age of 88, he said, I've got nothing to lose. 88. He wasn't kind of going through the Telegraph travel section looking for a cruise. He just said, let's go out with guns blazing. And so at the age of 88, he sailed yet again to Bugia on the North African coast, and he went there to preach Christ. For quite some time, he kind of, he hid in seclusion, in seclusion and just, again, witnessed when he could. And in the end, he thought, this is ridiculous, go for it. And so he went in public for the final time and declared to a crowd of Muslims, there is no salvation in Muhammad, it is in Jesus. There is no love in Islam, but there is in Jesus. And I urge you to yield to Jesus Christ. You can guess what happened. He was set upon. He was tried. He was condemned to death. And at the age of 88, he was stoned. Amazingly, some people rescued his body and it was taken back to Mallorca. And if you go into the church of San Francisco, you'll find the grave of Raymond Lowe. If any of you ever go to Mallorca, the chances of me going there are very, very slim. If you ever go there and want to take a photograph and send me it, I would be delightful. Why is it that such a saint like this has been forgotten? Why is it? What an interesting man. 
Let me just say a few little things in closing. He was a 13th century man who was locked into a Catholic church with nowhere else to go. So I have to be honest with you, a couple of things he taught would not be acceptable here. For example, he believed in Immaculate Conception. Mm. I don't think our churches would be happy with us teaching that doctrine. But you know something? I don't think Martin Luther would be accepted here either. Because Luther's view of Scripture was quite dodgy. Books I would put in and books I wouldn't put in. And also, I have yet to try and understand what Martin Luther meant by the Lord's Table. For me, it's far nearer the Catholic Mass than my understanding of what the Lord's Table is. And by the way, when I have read Luther, Luther spoke about even praying for the dead on occasions. So here's Luther. But we all go, wonderful Martin Luther. Yeah, but hang on a minute. Some pretty dodgy stuff there. And then we can bring it into our generation. I could bring people here who believe quite clearly in double predestination. And some would say, whoa, that's heresy. And then we're not even going to start on the second coming. The nonsense I've heard on the second coming has been unbelievable. I remember being told as a young boy, it scared the living daylights out of me, where somebody in a meeting said, the Lord has told me that the Antichrist is alive and well, and he's, he's around 13. I was 13. When... <laughs> I was, I didn't sleep that night. I would now call that man a heretic. Where have you got that from? I mean, the Lord told you. But it's surprising how most of us, if we're honest, have, this, have these barnacles of nonsense round about us, really. That, and, and when you're a pastor preaching God's word, you certainly find yourself saying, Lord, am I saying this because it's biblical or because it's British? It's because it's something I kind of picked up on the way. And, 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 and so this man picked up one or two things that I say, Raymond, you were a man of your generation. And it's so easy. We find this in this woke society. We in the 21st century, we know everything. You're all in the wrong. I'm not condoning his heresy. just want you to be aware of it. Secondly, he had a heart for evangelism. And uh, I, I feel deeply challenged by that. Not just the organized religious machinery of the day, but he really wanted to reach out to people. And an unevangelizing church is really not a New Testament church. Uh, and someone questioned me this morning, and quite rightly so, about me not being concerned about tomorrow's church. I am concerned about tomorrow's church, but my understanding is this. If we keep the church healthy today, tomorrow's church will be all right. Keep today healthy. Have a strong, healthy church today. Tomorrow will sort itself out because today's church will then be able to address tomorrow's church, which will then become today's church. He was an evangelizing man. Thirdly, he wasn't an ivory tower theologian. He clothed his Christianity with shoe leather. I always become very suspicious, and I don't mean to be rude by saying this, with people who tell me how to live who are not doing it. And that's one of the great things I like about this few conference, which keeps me coming year after year, is that it's done by people with shoe leather on trying to do it. 
there is a minister these days of professional conference speakers going around telling us how to live the Christian life and how to run the church. But when you analyze it, they're not in ministry, they're not pastoring churches, but they're giving us all the jargon. I appreciate people who just say, I'm an ordinary Joe, I'm an ordinary Sally, Harry, whatever. And you know, I'm seeking to serve God and I come to a compass like this and I've made massive mistakes, but I'm trying to reach out to people. He was no ivory tower theologian saying, this is how we should reach Muslims. He did it. He did it. Fourthly, he understood the gospel. I sometimes wish I was pretty naive. Did you, did you, did you ever long for those days where you question nothing? You know, like when you were sort of seven and eight and your dad knew everything. And even though your mother wasn't told a thing, she saw everything. Did your mother have eyes at the back of her head? Mine did. And, and I sometimes wish, I wish I was back in those days where I was so accepting, accepting and so naive about things. When you learn things, it unsettles you. Take, for example, Bernard of Clairvaux. We sing hymns by Bernard of Clairvaux. Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breast, but sweeter far thy face to see and on thy bosom rest. Oh, it's a beautiful hymn to sing around the Lord's table. I quote Bernard of Clairvaux. The soldier of Christ is safe when he slays, safer when he dies. When he slays, it profits Christ. When he dies, it profits himself. How can a man write a hymn? How sweet the name of Jesus sounds. Off with his head. Hallelujah. That's one more. It's kind of incongruous, isn't it? Raymond Lull said this, Our weapons against the Saracens must never be carnal. Never be carnal. You do not beat people into the kingdom of God. Fifthly, it's over 600 years since Raymond died. Have we really advanced our understanding of what Muslim evangelism really is? Or is it just tick box evangelism? And finally, I've spoken long enough. How would I describe Raymond Lowe? I put, he's like a Jonah. He's like a Paul. He's like a Stephen. He's like an Athanasius all rolled into one. He's a martyr for Christ. He's a patron of literature. He's a herald among the mystics. But above all, he's a lover of Christ. When you meet Raymond, you're going to meet him. Say, Raymond, it's great to meet you. I've heard a few things about you. <laughs> By the way, could you explain to me, what does it mean, the squaring and the triangulation <laughs> of a circle? He'll say, is that all you learned from David Earnshaw? Him writer said, Lord, it is my chief complaint that my love is weak and faint. Yet I love thee and adore, oh, for grace to love thee more. It's not about winning arguments, it's about loving the Lord Jesus, isn't it? Let's pray together. 
Father, we give you thanks. We have some wonderful relatives that we're going to spend eternity meeting. Men, women, young, old, boys and girls who in their own simple way have sought to lift the flag for the Lord Jesus. Father, we're humbled to think that a man like Raymond Lull ultimately paid the price. But he would count it a privilege to serve his Savior. Father, who knows what the future holds, but help us wherever you've put put us to never be ashamed of flying the flag for Jesus. And Father, if ever we start to get aggressive, we may not use swords, but by how our words can cut people down. When we feel tempted to do that, help us to remember that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Father, I simply ask, please make us more like the Lord Jesus. I ask it in his precious name. Amen.